Hey everybody, uh, from the east coast of America and the front lines of American healthcare and healthcare research, it's the Dashing Doctor back again after a long break and I do apologize for that. I'm very happy to be back with you here and I'm excited to get the podcast up and running again. August, it turned out, was not an optimal month for podcasting. Uh, I had a lot of uh, fun vacation opportunities, which I leapt for, and uh, work obviously was just starting up, and it was a very different sort of thing that took some getting used to, and uh, had some technical difficulties, and between one thing and another, just ended up not being an optimal time for putting out the podcast, and I do apologize for those of you who have stuck with me all this time and who are hearing this now, I do thank you for your continued listenership. And I hope that uh, now that fall is upon us, and finally, actually, I am seeing fall, and it's it's a wonderful feeling to be sort of sensing that little nip in the air, something that was missing on the West Coast and something that I think is one of the reasons that I found living on the West Coast so difficult. All right, well, let's kind of just hop right back in as if it hadn't been six weeks or whatever it is since I last broadcast. And uh, I want to get to the mailbag. There are a few good pieces of mail that came in long ago that I swore I'd get to, and then uh, there's been some recent activity in the email as well. So I want to be sure we cover all the listeners' questions. And uh, as I've always said, I want this podcast, particularly now that I'm not going to be necessarily able to provide moment-to-moment drama from the floors of the hospital. Uh, The more you all can participate in shaping what we talk about, how we talk about it, the better. The ways to do that, as always, email is dashingmd at yahoo.com. And there's the feed, which is at feeds.feedburner.com backslash dashingmd. And then, of course, there's the blog, dashingmd.blogspot.com where you'll find uh, discussions and you'll find uh, links to various interesting sites. And if you want to contribute to those discussions or give suggestions for those links, by all means, please do so. So let's turn to correspondence. And the first correspondence actually is from uh, one of our loyal listeners um, who writes in with uh, some technical pointers. If you are having trouble listening to this podcast, I guess telling this to the people who are listening to the podcast may not be of much use. But anyway, if uh, if for some reason you are listening to this but are having trouble listening to it, you may find that the system that I'm putting this up on is appending an MP3, like a .mp3 to the end of the file name, which should actually be a .m4a file name. So you're getting a file that's like episode 20.m4a.mp3. Now, if you delete that MP3, apparently... The podcast plays better on Media Player. So let's turn now to some medicine-related questions. First question is from Ryan, who wrote in, sorry about this, Ryan, June of this year, um, on the day, in fact, that I packed my car and headed east. uh, Ryan wrote, Dashing MD. First off, I want to thank you for the great show. There's really no other like it. I'm an army veteran with a wife and three kids. Have you seen medical students in a similar situation thrive or fail in a similar situation? If so, why do you think that was the case? Also, to what extent do you believe that a pre-med student can alleviate the stress level in medical school due to massive amounts of material to learn in a relatively brief period of time, 
by spending an extra few months in order to study? So, Ryan, great questions. Um, I think that medicine now, much more than medicine in the past, has really opened its arms to people with sort of non-traditional backgrounds. And I think that's one of the smartest things that the institution of medicine has done in a long time. Um, I think people who have alternative perspectives and a different sensibility about what it is to be a person than a 22-year-old college student are invaluable in medical school. And I think if we are going to espouse the virtue of diversity in medical school class, that needs to mean not just people of different ethnicities, but people of different backgrounds and with different life experience. Um, my experience with older students and people with extensive out-of-school lives uh, is generally very positive, honestly. Um, there were a couple people in my class who were older. One um, had gotten a PhD and she was in her 30s and another guy had been like a CFO of a Fortune 500 company and he was I think almost 40 when he started and had just decided to take a completely different career path they were both very dedicated and diligent and I think that like the sort of dedication and stick that medicine requires and medical school particularly requires is a lot harder for people who are fresh out of college. And I think a lot of medical school's reputation comes from people who are, you know, just out of college and they're like, oh, it's so much harder than undergrad. Um, but I think it's probably not harder than sort of juggling three kids and a life and a job and all those things. I mean, it's not substantially more difficult than that. Um, so I think it's great. And, you know, particularly if you've got a, a supportive wife who's not in medical school, I think that can work particularly well because there are going to be times when you're not available, particularly in your clinical years and God knows in your residency when you're going to need somebody who can make sure the kids get home from school and eat and all that sort of thing. The issue of being a veteran in medical school, I think, also helps you a lot. I mean, I think military training and medical school to some degree and residency to a large degree are are reasonably similar. I mean, I've done the residency medical school thing and I have not been a member of the armed services, but people I know in medical school who have been through the armed services and there were some Air Force pilots and some Navy guys in school with me um, and in the residency with me. And I think that that self-discipline gives you a huge hand up and makes things a lot easier. Um, so I, I, I think thriving is probably the more likely outcome for you, honestly. I mean, I think your background will, will only help. Now, you're going to have to sort of balance your life in a way that other people aren't. And I think, you know, the full-time dedication that medical school requires is, is going to be hard to balance with, like, a wife and three kids who also would like to have you full-time, um, but no more so than any other, like, all-consuming job. And then residency is going to be hard, but that's four years down the line. Um, and you don't necessarily have to go into a high-powered, super-malignant surgical residency program where you're going to never go home again. Um, my cousin just started his emergency medicine residency, and he is bitterly wailing about how much time and energy he spends at it. And he works like 50-hour weeks and is like overnight, like one night a month or something. I mean, it's unbelievable how easy this guy has it. And he does not appreciate me telling him so. 
Um, your second part of your question, to what extent do you believe pre-med students can alleviate stress in medical school um, by spending a few months beforehand, I assume, um, in order to study just sort of like, I guess, reading up in preparation? Um, I don't know. I don't think that would have worked for me. I think that medical school is like, I mean, it is, it's like drinking from a fire hose, but I don't know that like if I'd, you know, really read a lot of anatomy and a lot of biology and stuff before I started, if that would have really helped me in the sense that like, yes, you're responsible for the information. And maybe I would have known slightly more information if I'd studied beforehand. But really, I mean, what medical school is about is not so much the material as learning how to drink from a fire hose. And it's always going to be like that. And I don't know that, you know, in as much as you try to sort of take the pressure off a little bit early, like there's no way you could read in the few months before, like you might make the first couple weeks a little easier, but at some point you're just going to be like, just like everybody else and drinking from the fire hose. And so much of medical training is about learning how to sift through vast amounts of information for the important parts of information. I mean, I think this is one of the like, you know, everybody says in medical school, like you, you, you never end up using all that stuff you did pre-med, like the organic chemistry and the biochemistry. And, and yeah, it's true. You don't have to do a lot of like synthesis reactions and figure out the biochemistry of things so much. Um, and you don't use a lot of calculus and you don't do a lot of things that you have to do in undergrad in order to get into medical school, but you use the skills you learned to learn those things all the time. And I think that that is ultimately what you need to come away with in medical school. The fact is most of the stuff you learn in medical school, you don't apply in what you end up doing as a doctor, but you, by learning material in the way you learn it you are able to learn the things you need to learn in residency in a way that you wouldn't be able to if you hadn't gone through medical school. Does that make sense? It's sort of like the lesson is not the stuff, but the lesson is the lesson itself. So anyway, think about that. And Ryan, I'd love to hear more about your specific situation. Are you, you a pre-med student now planning to go to medical school? Um, if so, uh, you probably started by now. How's it going? What uh, What's your impression of how things are? And uh, did you read up ahead of time? And, and did that end up being good? Am I totally off base here? Um, let me know. I, I look forward uh, to hopefully hearing from you again about your journey through medicine. All right. The next item uh, from Dave, we've got uh, a letter saying, Dear Dashing MD, I recently sat down and viewed Michael Moore's new film concerning American healthcare and the healthcare of other nations. It served as a reality shock for me. I guess I never gave it much thought before, but the film opened my eyes to the failures of American healthcare. Right now, I'm just teeming with anger and disappointment at society's inability to provide universal healthcare. I guess you could say I'm only reciprocating the beliefs from one side, but I gotta tell you, the view from where I am isn't very pretty. As a U.S. citizen, I guess I'm incredibly disheartened by the lack of care that's put into American healthcare. It's like we're trading the lives of men and women that doctors work so hard to save for profits. I'm wondering what your thoughts on the film are, and if you think universal healthcare in America is feasible, and how so. Thanks so much. Well, Dave, first, an admission. Um, I haven't seen Michael Moore's movie. That, that movie, I believe, is called Sicko. Um, and it came out in theaters about the time that Dave sent me this message, which, again, was in June. And I apologize for taking so long 
uh, to answer this message, which is now off the headlines, but certainly for a good part of the summer was a major discussion point in um, the press and among doctors. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't have a great answer to this, to what healthcare should be. And I wish that, you know, I wish I felt that there was an obvious solution. I will say that I, like you, am horrified by the way that insurance companies use people's illnesses as a source of profits. Um, And I think that it's a travesty that we allow a system to be in place that encourages insurance companies to take as much money as possible and give back as little money as possible to people with serious diseases so that they can report a better bottom line on their corporate balance sheets. I think it's an inherent conflict of interest, and I think it's something that future generations of Americans will hopefully uh, look back on and just absolutely wonder at the folly of their ancestors. That said, um, I think that the system... Uh, of American healthcare has allowed for a huge amount of innovation. The way that you can be rewarded for creating something new, a new treatment, a new drug, a new uh, technology, um, or a new administrative process for decreasing medical costs really inspires a lot of innovation. And I, I wish, obviously, that people would be inspired to innovate for medicine, not because they thought they could make a lot of money, but because they thought it was the right thing to do for the world, but accepting that the world doesn't necessarily work that way. Um, I think, you know, the American for-profit system, if not insurance, then, you know, certainly pharmaceutical and device industries really has driven a huge amount of innovation. But I really do believe that it's sort of senseless for us to create all these amazing new medical technologies and then make it impossible for people to afford them. Um, I mean, what's the point of being able to do all these things and have all these drugs that do all this stuff when, you know, most people won't be able to afford the, the drug you're making. And what's more, the process of making that drug makes people unable to afford even other drugs. I think some of the fault with that lies in the healthcare system, the way it works. I think a lot of the fault with that, honestly, just lies with American society, which somehow has gotten it into its head that with just a little bit more medicine or a little bit fancier machines, um, immortality would be ours for the taking. And I think there's a sort of an assumption of health here that makes it impossible for the system to do any sort of reasonable rationing. And by that I mean, you know, I, th- I, I believe strongly in a universal healthcare system um, that provides some basic safety net stuff. I don't think it's feasible or even really necessarily desirable for a, a universal healthcare system to provide, you know, broad coverage for every disease at the cutting edge of innovation. I, I think it would be impossibly expensive. Um, but I, and I also think it wouldn't necessarily be necessary. Now, for an example of how how this works, you can look at the veterans' hospitals in America. They used to be absolutely horrible, just dangerous places to be. They are now probably the safest and best-run hospitals in the country with some of the best outcomes in the country. And the way they did that was sort of a combined thing. The, the biggest thing I think they did was that they 
computerized the electronic medical record of every veteran. So you can look up any patient in the veteran system and you can know exactly what medications they're taking, exactly what their healthcare problems are moment to moment, and you can write orders on their care from anywhere in the world to refill prescriptions. Or if they're in a hospital, you can put them on a ventilator from 5,000 miles away, honestly. It's, um, it's incredible stuff that they've done in a, in a reasonably efficient way. The other thing they've done, though, is that they have been very careful about selecting what procedures are and are not available to veterans and what medications are and are not available. And they've gone through and done very exhaustive analyses of procedures and medications and have been willing to to put on their formularies, their lists of acceptable procedures and medications, um, drugs which are maybe slightly less effective and hugely cheaper. And there are a huge number of medications out there that are very effective, slightly less effective than the most modern cutting edge things, but very effective that are dirt cheap. And there are certain procedures out there that just are not generally indicated. And the veteran system has successfully rationed. They've said, we will pay for X and Y, but we will not pay for Z. You cannot have treatment for this condition at the level that you would have in a private healthcare system where money is no object. And I think that works really well because ultimately there is no real system where money is no object. But there's this sort of belief in American society that when it comes to health, every stop should be pulled. And it turns out that people are mortal and they're going to die. And at some point there's a choice between having people die in a way that's fundamentally respectful of them and that's painless for them and that's a little bit faster than would necessarily be if you sort of pulled out all the stops or deciding to pull out all the stops and spending millions, literally millions of dollars on a person in their last weeks of life when they're still going to die and they're going to die during that hospitalization. I mean, the things that we do in intensive care units to keep people alive who are um, who are clearly not going to survive the hospitalization or if they survive the hospitalization are going to clearly be completely debilitated for the rest of their life is astonishing to me. And really one of the hardest things I find to deal with in medicine is when you are you know, in the ICU and you've got a 95-year-old patient who was demented didn't know where they were before they came into the hospital who've now has had a surgery and I can think of I don't know 50 examples of this I mean of patient patients who came in got a huge amount of care despite having no appreciation themselves for their quality of life um, then developed complications and received literally hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars worth of care and died anyway. And I think it's an astonishingly bad use of resources um, that comes from not being willing as a society to acknowledge that there should be limits to what we do for patients in terms of trying to cure them. I think so much of medicine, medicine's palliative effect, palliative skills have been sort of underplayed in favor of this sort of like belief on the patient's part and on doctor's parts that 
you know, if we're just a little bit better all the time, we could make someone live another day and then another day and then another another day. And I think sort of this willful disacknowledgement of mortality is is a bad thing. And I think without fixing that, we'll never have universal health care. And I think without some sort of fundamental universal health care, this country will really suffer. And I don't think it'll suffer forever. I think someone will... I think universal health care is inevitable, um, and some of these hard decisions are inevitable. Um, and I think some measure of sort of a, a safety net coverage is probably, hopefully, on the horizon, uh, even with the next presidential election, hopefully. So that was Dave, and that was my long-winded response to him. And we go now to an Alaskan nurse who writes, Dear Dashing, I love the podcast. I've been listening since almost the beginning, and I'm thrilled whenever a new show is posted. My question, though you've often touched on this topic, is how you deal with the difficult and often mentally draining aspects of working in a hospital, especially in situations where your hands are tied because of family or other members of the healthcare team. Within my own clinical experience, I came across a patient that had made some extremely poor choices that led him to a hospital bed in a vegetative state. His body was slowly deteriorating, and he was essentially dying a painful, slow death. With his power of attorney hundreds of miles away and choosing to keep his distance and the patient alive at all costs, but not even choosing to stop by. While there could be so many things that could and probably did happen in this family that I had no idea about, it still was heartbreaking to watch this poor man suffer day in and day out. The procedures he was getting were painful, and all I could do was lie there and take it day in and day out. My question is how you as a healthcare provider deal with these days. How do you go home and chill out, go out with friends, or simply just have a normal life without these issues making you nuts? Thanks for your amazing stories. I hope you know how much you're appreciated. Uh, well, thank you, Alaskan nurse. Um, it, as I say, it, it, it's to be a part of this discussion and to hear from the listeners and to be able to sort of explore your thoughts and your stories with my own thoughts and stories um that makes doing this whole thing worthwhile thank you so much for your letter i think some of those issues of you know people in vegetative states and the things we do to them and the pain that we inflict on them um needlessly um because of decisions that they have made about not ever wanting to have things stopped on them or the decisions that their powers of attorney make as you say often from hundreds of miles away without really trying to delve into it, just sort of the easy reflexive answer is, oh, just keep doing everything you can. And then I think people can feel less guilt-ridden somehow about what their choices they're making. Um, when I think it's it's usually painfully obvious to them when they actually come to the hospital to make these decisions, as we always encourage them to do, um, that that the decision to do everything possible is is actually in many cases a very cruel decision to make um how do i deal with those days though um well i'm taking two years off to do research um and those days are certainly a part of that decision um i knew i was going to do that anyway um, for fellowship preparation and everything but i think you know, knowing that uh, I had two years of lab work coming up certainly made getting through some of those days, particularly later in the part of the second year, 
um, a lot easier. Um, my experience is that you're so tired at the end of the day that, yeah, you go home and chill out. I mean, yeah, I, I would seriously go home and just stare at a wall for like an hour sometimes after work. You're sort of like you're too tired to sleep, um, but you're certainly too tired to do anything else. Um, there's a lot of sort of vicarious thrill seeking. Like I, I was a huge, huge Netflix user. Um, and I, I don't know, I'm a sort of essentially introverted person, I guess. So like I sort of recharge by being alone. I think other people, you know, there's, um, there's a lot of heavy drinking among residents. Um, not on the job that I ever saw, but certainly like there are a lot of people whose idea of what to do with, you know, a free weekend or a free night, um, is to get a bunch of people together and go to a bar and, you know, drink their sorrows away. Um, which definitely never did it for me. Um, I never was even driven to try that, but, um, they seem to feel like it was an effective, thing to do um i think you know the the greatest resource that we have in dealing with these things and sort of the the sort of difficult part about it in many cases is that you know you do you go to the hospital and you see these unbelievable things um and you come home and you try to explain them to people who don't really understand it who haven't seen it you know i mean you try to you talk to your you know non-medical friends or your parents or your siblings or whatever I mean you talk about like oh this difficult thing you saw um but you quickly learn that like their response is going to be like oh that sounds really bad like you know or like you explain like my parents I think it never understood like exactly what went into like a day I mean because they were always sort of surprised about that like the the call schedule things like you they they never understood that like when you went to the hospital one morning you would like stay there all day all night and then the next day and you'd be working the whole time. Like, I, I think they sort of say, oh, that sounds hard. But I think that, like, there's always sort of an indication that they think that somewhere in there, you're actually, you're getting a full night's sleep, you know. Uh, and um, and so I always found, like, talking about the craziness of what I was seeing and, like, the, the utter insanity of it. I mean, even as much as I, like, try to put it into words, you know, you can't really capture it completely. All you can really do is sort of talk about it in shorthand. And my experience is that the only people who can really understand that shorthand, who can really decipher it and say, you know, and, and who, when you say like, oh, I saw this unbelievable trauma where this guy was conscious and yet he had a giant rod sticking through his brain. Um, you know, a lot of people are like, ooh, I imagine I saw something like that on television. But the people who can really understand that, who can put themselves in your shoes and know what you were seeing and smelling and what it was like to have to deal with that trauma while 50 other traumas like were running around around you are your fellow residents um and as i said you know i've never been in the armed services um but i imagine it's sort of that same brothers in arms feeling that i have towards um, particularly a couple of my really close friends in the residency, um, people who you just know, understand what you were seeing and what you were doing. And, um, and, and having those close friendships makes all the difference. I mean, being able to 
come home at the end of the day and just call a friend and say something just usually our conversations are so short i mean it's usually like you call them up and you're like dude i had this liver transplant and we you know like we closed the the final anastomosis and like she just totally tanked and like we were doing all this like we were doing compressions in the OR and I had to go to talk to the family. That's it. And then they're like, they say, yeah, that sounds, yeah, that's bad news. Like, let me tell you about my day. Um, and you know that they fully understand it. You know that they get in that sentence, they appreciate your plight and they can share it. You know, they can give right back with something of their own that, that didn't go well that day. And that makes all the difference in the world. Um, not feeling as though you're going through it alone. And I think one of my great complaints about the residency is that, you know, we didn't, as a group of residents, I think so often it felt like we were a bunch of individuals sort of each individually trying to survive. Um, and there wasn't a great sense of camaraderie outside the walls of the hospital. I think, you know, where I was on the West Coast, there was a lot of individualism and not a lot of collective spirit um and it's to contrast that with the place i am now i mean i don't have any clinical duties in my current job but i'm around the residents a lot and i sort of watch them and um i think they here have a huge amount more sort of collective identity of feeling as though they're all in it together and they they do a lot of things together outside of work and they're sort of scheduled weekly get-togethers that i think make make a huge difference and why here and not there I don't know I mean it may I think it probably has a lot to do with the institution and the institutional memory of the place I am versus the place I was and sort of the institutional dynamics that that drive a sort of sense of collegiality here and a sense of individual uh, perspiration there but also I think it's a question of workload I mean I just think you know in, in where I was we all worked so hard that that at the end of the day it really was you know you just try to get home you try to get home without falling asleep while you were driving. Um, and uh, I think here, you know, the, the volume is lower. The resident to patient ratio is higher. There's like less craziness um, constantly running through the hospital. Um, and uh, and I appreciate that. I, I, I think those guys really benefit from it. And I, I hope they realize that, um, know what they're, what they're missing. So that's my answer to that question, um, and uh, thanks so much for writing in uh, with your questions on that. I'm always interested to know from the nurse's perspective, you know, how, A, like what, what's your answer to that question? How do you deal with those difficult days? And, and B, and this is really always interesting to me, like what's your perspective of doctors and how they're dealing with these things? Um, my closest friend in residency is actually... Um, dating a, a wonderful woman who's a, an ICU nurse and it's been fascinating to talk to her and become really good friends with her and hear sort of her perspective and her friends nurse friends perspectives on us you know before she actually got to know me as a person like what she thought of me as a doctor um it's been fascinating to hear and it there's some expected things and some very unexpected things about what their sort of predictions about me as a person were like so um, anyway, I hope that, uh, that I can continue to provide all of you with, uh, some perspectives on what I'm like, um, in, uh, coming podcasts, uh, keep the questions coming. 
Um, and I look forward to being back here before too long. I think now that, uh, as I said, as the fall is coming along, we'll get back to a regular broadcasting schedule. In the meantime, please visit the blog, dashingmd.blogspot.com. Send me an email at dashingmd at yahoo.com. You can also send email off the link at the blog. Um, and if you're uh, hearing this for the first time and you want to subscribe, uh, look on iTunes. So just search for dashingmd, or you can go to uh, feeds.feedburner.com backslash dashingmd and find us there. So anyway, thank you all so much. I'm so happy to be back with you all. And let's uh, boldly go forward into this world of medicine and medical research together united. All right. Take care and be well.